again to the Conversations I'm Not a Podcast. I'm your host, John Harris. Thankful to be here. Thankful also today, as I'm recording this on July 4th, to be in the United States, to have the heritage we have, which has been very much influenced by Christianity. And uh, it's forgotten in many ways. It's unfortunate that um, we can look around us and see all the signs, I think, of uh, decay and God's judgment. And um, there's still some silver linings, as we saw a week and a half ago with the Supreme Court. But um, but we still have, and we are reaping the blessings of a wonderful heritage. And I think we can still celebrate that. And, and that's what I intend to do. Now, you're probably listening to this on July 5th, because that's when I'm releasing it. And uh, as I'm releasing it, actually, I'm as you're, as you're hearing it, I'm going to be either on my way to or in South Carolina. I'm wearing my South Carolina hat. I'll probably wear it the next week. And I'll be in Charleston for about five days. And I'll be at a conference down there. Uh, that I went to in 2017, uh, the Abel Institute uh, puts it on. And uh, they have a number of uh, great, uh, oftentimes, really thought-provoking history scholars. Uh, and, and sometimes they'll have experts in literature and other areas come. And usually it's about Southern history and, or some facet of Southern history. Uh, this time, though, I think it's going to be a little broader. They're going to be, uh, we're going to have some scholars talking about American history, specifically Abraham Lincoln, and I'm looking forward to this. And one of the things, though, I wanted to mention this to you because one of the things I'm going to be doing, I mentioned this actually for the last year, is talking to a few of the scholars there about the 1607 Project. And I've, I've talked about this, and there's conversations that have happened in the background I haven't really updated people on, but it's going to happen. It's going to happen. It's it's in the works. In the next few months, I should have a link for you if you want to donate to this. It's going to be great for homeschoolers. It's going to be great for hopefully some Christian schools out there. This is going to be an alternative to the 1619 Project and also an alternative in some ways to the 1776 Project. And so um, one of the things that I wanted to share with you is just a brief sketch of what that might look like uh, as we've had these conversations. Uh, 1776, 1619, I think there's, um, there, there's some things in common here that between the two that I, I find interesting uh, that I think 1607 will address. Now, if it, some, some inadequacies that I think the 1607 project is going to help uh, just really supplement, but, but it's really more than supplement. I think the 1607 project is really where it's at. And here's my argument. Here's, here's what, how I'm thinking about this. And this is the conception that I had really from the beginning. Um, so historians, think about it this way. You have a river and you want to trace its headwater. Okay, we have this big raging river. How did it come, become so influential, so big? It divides a continent, the Mississippi. Oh my goodness, it's 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 the lifeblood of this country. Well, where did it come from? And you trace up, and eventually you're going to come to a small stream. What's the headwater? How do you know which is the the stream that started the Mississippi River? Well, there's a lot of converging streams, right? So how do we know which one it is? And I think it's the same way with history. We have converging streams. We have converging influences that come in to form the present set of circumstances that we live in. But nonetheless, it is important to kind of know definitionally what what America is. Uh, and it can be, it's very, it's much broader, I think, than 1776 or 1619. 1619 essentially says that America is this horrible, racist, oppressive place. And we can see that from the beginning because in 1619 there were African slaves. Now, really, they were indentured servants. But I digress. A Dutch ship brought African indentured servants, quote unquote, slaves to uh, the coast of Virginia. And that's when it all started. That's the foundation of the United States. It's in the DNA of the United States. It's definitional to, to the United States. It's always been that way. And it serves a present political purpose to define the United States as oppressive. Uh, we can then uh, 
choose to overcome what the United States is. Now, here's here's 1776 and what more conservatives, really more neoconservatives, um, I think more Straussian West Coast uh, type conservatives have given us in, in this project. And, and I think what they're doing is a noble effort because what they're trying to do is hedge against 1619. They're saying, no, it's not an oppressive place, but here's how they're doing it. And I want you to see kind of the weakness to this. Um, America's not an oppressive place. Actually, the seeds of freedom, liberty, and equality were planted in 1776 when we separated from Great Britain, but we had the Declaration of Independence. And um, and, and that celebrates uh, the equality and the freedom and the liberty of this new, unique, grand experiment, this, this, these, this new people. That, and, and so um, it, it almost gives the impression that out of a vacuum or out of thin air, you know, these ideas, these abstractions kind of uh, took hold and this has never been done before in human history. And now uh, it's just waiting every year for the revolution to continue. So you have a continuous revolution with 1776 project type stuff. It's so, so, so essentially what, and I'm, and, and of course I'm, I'm taking it to its logical conclusion here. I'm not saying that all the people behind that are necessarily uh, giving, they're not saying all these things, although I'm sure some of them are, but, but things like, um, let's say the f- freedom for slaves. Okay. That's part of the seeds of Liberty that were planted by the founders. Of course, yes, they had slavery. Uh, Thomas Jefferson owned slaves as he penned the declaration of independence, but he sowed the, fr- the, the seeds of what eventually would overcome slavery. Okay. And what would eventually overcome uh, the, the sh- uh, chauvinism, misogyny, all these things and give women the right to vote. And, um, and for some, you know, you could, this is kind of a blank check. You could say, this also is what broke up the trusts during, uh, Theodore Roosevelt's time. It's what brought us the freedom from want and freedom from fear, uh, during FDR's time and social security. And it gave us the great society. And we have federally subsidized public education now and LGBT rights. And, oh my goodness, it it can give you so many things. And this is all coming from the seed of liberty that was planted by the founders, and, um, and, and so that's something that I would push back on. I don't think the founders were thinking in their heads, yeah, you know, and I don't think anyone is saying this, but yeah, you know, L- LGBT rights. But I don't think even the concept they were introducing was meant or intended to, um, or, or even thought to, or even logically could do what some today are saying it does. And so really you have, I think, two, two wings of progressivism here. With 1619, you have America bad, okay? It needs to be... Uh, it's fundamentally flawed. We need to re- fundamentally remake America, as Obama said. With uh, 1776, America, good, okay? And so we can say, hey, plus one, America is good. But why is it good? Well, it's good because it's got all these problems that uh, the tr- and, and the true America is this idea. It's not a place. It's not a people. It doesn't have to speak English. It's an idea. So it's an abstraction. It's That's what America really is. And that's why America is good. It's because this idea of freedom and it can be detached from the cultures that brought it here. Uh, and it, it actually, that idea is what kind of tills the soil to make way for this uh, place of equity, inclusion, diversity. Um, and it really does tend that direction. I mean, a, a progressive can really take hold of that and say, okay, we're going to have the progressive uh, idea of this, uh, the progressive narrative. 
And it's not going to be America fundamentally flawed. It's going to be America good. But really the thing that we're narrow, the, the scope of America is these ideas. So we're narrowing what America actually is down to this, the, synthesizing it into just these, these narrow abstractions that can then be applied to all these other problems. And so the founders can be heroes because they introduce the ideas that have led to the revolution we're in. And, and the revolution, though, never really ends. I don't know if you've noticed that, but there's always something new. There's all, you know, it's going to be free, free healthcare, right? That we haven't achieved that yet. If, I mean, we're on the way, but you know, that's the next rung on the ladder. So, so, so the, I think it's, it's kind of, uh, it's, it's a Trojan horse, I think, to go down the 1776 project road. I think it sounds really good in the front end of it. There's some really good things. And there's some really true things, I think, that are said by, by many of the scholars there. I think though, that ultimately, though, it, it's, it can lead to and it can be wielded by progressives uh, in such a way that um, it tells the positive story of the United States, but it doesn't really get what the United States is right. It gives you a part of it. Ideas are important, but it takes it two steps farther, that these ideas then lead to all these other things, and these are consistent with those ideas. And uh, and and it's just, it's so the ideas are the, the the abstractions are so narrow, but the applications are so broad. So um, here, here's my radical idea, I guess. Right? It's not radical at all. Uh, it's uh, really, I think, the way that many Americans have thought about their history for a long time, uh, up until recently. And um, and that's that America is really just an extension of what came before. So if you're looking for the where the stream, the headwaters of the stream, uh, you're going to see converging place streams. You're going to see the Dutch influence, you know, New York. You're going to see uh, French Huguenots. You're going to see um, you're going to see Africans and their descendants coming in, and they have had, had a profound influence, especially in places like the South. Um, you you can see Spanish influence in Florida. You, I mean, you can see all these things, right? And you see the French, right? You you see all all these different European peoples. But uh, primarily the headwater and what's influenced our country's legal system and our culture and all, all these other things, if, if you want to uh, say that there you know, is a, a unique kind of broad American culture, it's English. It's Albion Seed. It's David Hackett Fisher's book, Albion Seed. It's, it's these different parts of Great Britain that have had the primarily in, at the beginning, at this very formative period in our country's history, they've had the most amount of people coming. And they've exerted the most influence. And furthermore, they were the first. Now, I know the Spanish were in Florida, but I mean, during our war for independence, that was still, they, they were out of it. That was Spanish. So um, when you, you think of the United States itself, it's English. So, so in, in, uh, it, it would have started really with, um, uh, sequentially with the English coming here, 1607. So there's a great importance, I think, to this. And I think Virginia becomes one of the, primarily primary definitional states to this country uh, because Virginia obviously claimed a lot more land than it does now. I mean, but so many explorers and presidents and Supreme Court justices and just influential people, generals in the early years, the formative years came from Virginia. And so the 1607 project is really looking at this differently, I think, than the 1619 and 1776. 1619 is going to be primarily focused on this Ab, it's, it's an abstraction. It's the it's the idea of enslavement, the the idea of oppression, and that's what is that's in the DNA of America. And the 1776 is saying, no, it's the idea of freedom and liberty. That's that's what America is. And 1607 would say it's not an idea. There's ideas attached to this, but it's not an idea that makes America what it is. It's a culture. 
and it, and it's you know has a it has language it has religion christianity okay we're going to focus on christianity in the 1607 project um it's 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 got music and and uh, food and you know cuisine it's got uh there's flavor to it there's there's all kinds of there's architecture there all these things these these rich things um are actually what make america what america is and so um that's you know and, and of course other parts of the country are going to be mentioned but we start at the headwater we start at 1607 uh with the jamestown colony and and really you know even the pilgrims right you know they were coming why don't you talk about the pilgrims well pilgrims pilgrims came much later right i mean not much but 1607 1620 okay they came later but where were they trying to get to virginia <laughs> they were trying to get to virginia it was because of jamestown that you had these other groups coming over um uh, the, the Dutch, of course, you know, they came over um, uh, right after 1607, but uh, they were aware of the English presence. And, um, and, and so I think starting there and, and with the assumption that it's really culture that's the, uh, the, the really formative thing here, that even the ideas like freedom and liberty and what those meant in context, which isn't egalitarianism, but what they meant in context at the time, uh, I call it Secession Day sometimes, July 4th, breaking away from Great Britain because of its unconstitutional, tyrannical abuse of authority. Uh, you know, that that traces back to a history in Britain that goes back to the Magna Carta. I mean, this is, uh, their their concept of these things didn't just fly out of thin air in 1776. America, or what we know of as of the United States, it existed before that. And so, and, and everything's on, you know, on, on a timeline here. So if we're going to, but if we're going to jump in to say, here's the date, here's, here's when the, you really want to talk about the seeds of America being planted. I think it's 1607 and I think it's going to be a great uh, resource. So there's going to be a, a really good uh, video that is going to go along with this. There's going to be a number of essays and uh, I'll have more information for you soon. But in that vein, in that historical vein, I want to talk to you about uh, Thomas Jefferson a little bit today and some, some things I, I've been aware of this, but uh, it's it's interesting to me to see kind of what's happened. It, it, what's happened to Thomas Jefferson is very similar in my mind to what's happened with Confederate monuments. So Confederate monuments have become, it, it, it's the issue that no um, Republican with any national clout seems to want to touch. Even if they agree they shouldn't come down, they're not going to fight for it. You see, you know, Governor Yunkin of Virginia, uh, who just recently, by the way, hosted an LGBT pride event. Uh, I mean, this is this guy. I mean, he's not a conservative. I've said that forever, but uh, people are very excited. Yunkin's, you know, this great guy. Well, Yunkin, um, you know, there's no will with Yunkin to, to uh, bring back uh, any of these monuments that have been taken down. There's just, there's, and I think many who voted for him thought that he would do that. Uh He's, he doesn't have any intention of doing that. And uh, the, most of the Republican governors in states where the, this stuff is happening, you know, they're sometimes they're even behind it. But if they are against it, they're going to, you know, whisper, whisper behind closed doors. You know, they're afraid of being called racist really is what it is. And so it's become it's a weird situation, I think, where you have the majority of populations in these states uh, from the beginning. And even now, I think, you know, the dead set against. I remember when I was in Virginia, uh, I guess this would have been the two years ago. No, it was a year ago. Uh, when the election results came in, there was a, uh, a number of counties that they were voting. Should we get rid of our monuments in these particular counties? And um, it was coming back 70, 
85% no, keep these monuments in place. You know, it was like 60, between 60 and 85% in most of these counties. And to me, this just, it shows that the population, now the population is going to shift as they keep getting indoctrinated now by both sides, really. It's by the both the Democrats and the Republicans are jumping on this to try to, to be the ones that are, we're, we're against these, you know, uh, these monuments to racism. Well, they never, what's pr promoting the idea that these are monuments to racism? Well, it has to be a critical race theory type assumption that you're making to connect these. You have to, because they're going to just jump into some kind of, here, here's a secession document from Mississippi. And look at the, they talk about uh, wanting to secede because of slavery and extension into the territories. And they didn't want, um, uh, they want slavery to uh, be allowed in the common territory of the United States, that kind of thing. Therefore, they seceded over this. And that's, that means that these monuments are racist. And, and of course, you have to make logical jumps to get there. You don't see anything on the monuments that would designate that. Uh, they, were, they weren't put up for those reasons. The soldiers who fought, uh, really primarily in defense of their homes, weren't thinking, yeah, I really just want to, I never have owned slaves. I would never have a hope of owning slaves, but that's what I'm fighting for. You know, none of that stuff is there. These are, these are monuments to soldiers who fought bravely, not to, um, not, not to uh, slavery or to white supremacy or to governments that want to enshrine that uh, as the fundamental thing they're about. They're not to those things, but you, you have to make the connection. Now, here's the, here's the thing, though. We've gone down this path with, with this in the United States, where the elites who represent these areas don't want to touch it with a 10-foot pole. Even though their constituents say, we don't want these things removed, the elites are like, no, and we're, we're going to remove them anyways. Or we're going to allow that to happen. What you've done is you, you've taught the population uh, that, you know, this is that, that anything that can be connected somehow, even if it's like two or three steps to connect something to oppression, slavery, racism, et cetera, that it's now, it, it's soured. It's something that we shouldn't be proud of. It's something that we should be ashamed of. We should take it down. It shouldn't be in the public eye. It's a spectacle. It's a pariah. And I think Donald Trump made the great uh, observation in 2017, I think it was, that where does this end? You're going to, if you do this here, you, you can also do it with Thomas Jefferson. You can do it with George Washington. You can do it with uh, the many in the founding generation, you can basically the 1619 project is going to define everything in America as racist because it can connect everything by two or three steps to racism somehow. They, they have some way of doing it. So that's the world we live in now, and it's like we're watching every year what what's next to fall. What's next? Uh, you know what, what's and, and corporate America is enforcing it too. So I think that was the first. That was low hanging fruit. Um, take out those those monuments. And Thomas Jefferson, though, was kind of concurrent with this, was this idea that Thomas Jefferson uh, raped Sally Hemings. And, and this, uh, this has become, just like I think with Confederate monuments, this has become part of the official narrative now of Thomas Jefferson's biography and of, uh, it's now brought up commonly in relationship to the Declaration of Independence and 4th of July. This is, um, th this is really just, 
it's not even something that's debated is really my point. Just like Confederate monuments really aren't debated in elite circles in places of academic influence or political influence. It's just assumed that, oh, they must be racist. It's the, the same things with Thomas Jefferson now. Thomas Jefferson must have raped Sally Hemings. There's no really debate about it. Hardly at all. I mean, I, I, it's just now locked in. It's baked into the cake. And every year, it's like something else gets baked into the cake. And so um, I want to talk about this and I want to challenge this because because, uh, you know, John really wants to be politically incorrect. No, John just likes the truth. I just want to I just want to give you what 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 we know, what we can prove historically uh, and then give you the limitations of that, what we can't. And we cannot prove this historically. And so I'm going to show you a video at the end of this. But I'm going to start here. Uh, this is a comedian uh, just a few um days ago, or, well, this is, yeah, July, June 30th. America has a long history of forcing teenage girls to bear the children of the men who raped them. Just ask Sally Hemings. Hmm. Over 2,000 likes. And, of course, this is right before July 4th, and uh, and so he's, he posts this. And, you know, you'd think, okay, well, this is just, this is baked into the cake. It's just the way that people think out there. But I, I, I noticed this. Thomas Kidd. And he wrote a book. Um, I haven't read the book yet, but it's Thomas Jefferson, A Biography of Spirit and Flesh. Now, Thomas Kidd, for those who don't know, he's one of the evangelical elites, one of the evangelical scholars. Uh, he's in academia. Uh, he um, actually, I think now he's adjunct teaching, uh, or at least part, I don't know if they call it, ad, I don't think it's adjunct, but he, he teaches, he has some relationship with uh, Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. Um, he is, he's written for the Gospel Coalition, so he's got, but he also has uh, credibility from outside uh, of evangelical circles. And so, the, the, I mean, evangelicals love that. When you have credibility outside their circles, but then you, you come in and you, you can be kind of uh, uh, important in, in their circles as well. And so Thomas Kidd has uh, a lot of influence. Historically, he's got a tremendous amount of influence uh, in evangelical circles. And a number of the historians um, in evangelicalism are the ones that are promoted. I'm, I've been very disappointed in, to be honest with you. Thomas Kidd, here, here's the thing about Thomas Kidd, though. I actually like Thomas Kidd's, what I've read by Thomas Kidd, I read a few of his books. I actually like his books. And here's one of the things I like about Thomas Kidd is Thomas Kidd, like if you read his book about the Great Awakening, okay, he will separate, when, when he talks about things, social issues, he will separate his opinions. You, you know that it's Thomas Kidd giving you his opinions versus here's what actually happened. He, he tries to not allow as much as he can his opinions uh, his moral judgments to influence uh, his um, his telling the story. His um, and and of course we know to some extent that might influence what he emphasizes and what he doesn't. But but he does his his utmost to just use the objective tools of historical analysis and then to to as much as he can right kind of like the principles of hermeneutics if you're studying the bible try to use these use these principles of historiography and then kind of separate here's here's my opinions on this here's here's what i think about here's how how do we deal with jonathan edwards and slavery or george whitfield and slavery right so that's what i appreciate about him is because he it doesn't he he doesn't really bring the preachiness into the narrative as much and it, he's not o overly preaching anyway now he is He's, he's in academia. If you're in academia, 98% of historians today, just 95%, they're on the left, okay? It is really weighted towards the progressive left, like super weighted. Like I could comfortably say like any books written within the last 15 years 
by major historians, uh, I would just be skeptical of them right away. Just be, and they're probably influenced by some kind of critical theory because that's what historiography or historians, uh, that's what that's the pool they're drinking out of. That's what they're in. That's the world they're in. That's how they get acceptance. That's how they get, uh, to, to, if you're innovative and especially if you push social justice, um, you are accepted more in the guild. You are, you have accolades and you get speaking. Uh, and, and these people just, I'll just tell you straight up because I've, I've been around a number of these people. These people live for that. They live for uh, the, um, the, just the approval of their peers, the sense of accomplishment they get. And if you take that away from them, many of them are they're some of the most insecure people I've ever met in the world. Like that is who they are. That's their identity. And so it kind of is, it forces you, if you want to survive in academia and flourish in academia and have respect as a good historian, because who, who's going to listen to you other than other historians and sometimes nerdy people. I'll just be honest with you. I can say that because I'm, I'm one of them, right? You, you're going to kind of push the envelope. You're going to push towards that social justice direction. You're going to emphasize things. You're going to fudge things even sometimes uh, to get these ridiculous narratives sometimes. Well, this is one of the narratives that, frankly, should never have taken root as deeply as it has. And it's become now the official narrative. And Thomas Kidd buys into it. I know Thomas Kidd because he's in academia. He's and because I've seen other tweets from him and things he said in the Gospel Coalition. Yeah, he's more he's more progressive in my mind. Um, but he's a historian, so probably in the historical world, he's way on the right in their minds. But he's you know he's a Christian, so they have to look at him probably with a suspicious eye a little bit. But then when he you know he he does good research and then he he comes to them and he's got semi progressive ideas on some things. He's he's more he'd be more accepted. I mean, it's just how, kind of how it works. But in you know, in most of probably many of you who are listening, who are Christians, who are conservative, um, he would be to the left of you, definitely. And so, um, so, so anyway, but but it, I'm just saying, even though he's to the left, I, I think his historical research a lot of time is really good. I, I don't, I would say, yeah, read a Thomas Kidd book. Just make sure you realize that he he might give you some of his opinions on things, but if you separate those two, which he allows you to do, then you're fine. Here's his his article recently, June seventh. Should we judge Thomas Jefferson by his ideas or his actions? His ideas or his actions? A new biography maps out the moral tensions that tormented his mind and tainted his legacy. Now, this is in the context, is coming out in 2022. You know, Thomas Jefferson is, it's just assumed that he had this uh, not only affair, but a rape, really, with Sally Hemings. It's assumed that he uh, was, he had all these contradictions, and some, some, in some extent he did, I guess. Uh, but but the thing that's what's emphasized now that Thomas Jefferson was, um, even despite the fact that he was a genius, that he was such a seminal figure in the founding of our country in so many areas. He was a Renaissance man. Those things aren't focused on. It's more social history and what Thomas Jefferson's social views were and um, the things that he notes that he took private letters. Those kinds of things now you know, are, are being emphasized, uh, you know, and, and really Thomas Kidd is even saying this, is it his ideas that he wrote down or is it what he actually did that we should, that, that we should uh, use to define him? And I say actions are more important than words, but, uh, but there's social historians all over Thomas Jefferson trying to find all these politically incorrect views he held and really to present him as just this mired, confused uh, figure. I mean, there's a lot of psychological, I mean, that's what you have today. You have social history and uh, psychological uh, analysis of history. You don't really have 
much in the way of diplomatic history or the other fields that you used to have in history. They're just not as important anymore. So that's kind of what's happening. And, and it's in this environment Thomas Kidd writes this. Here's the disappointing thing. Thomas Kidd uh, says, or here's, here's the article opens. Um, it says that um, much of, okay, I'll start here. Thomas Jefferson continues to inspire and divide Americans. Uh, he still ranks in the top 10 in C-SPAN's uh, Presidential Historian Survey. Recent years have witnessed Thomas Jefferson's name and image removed from schools, libraries, and halls of government. And that's true. I mean, I, when I was in Virginia, they were trying to rename Thomas Jefferson High School. I remember this. Jefferson's statue at his own University of Virginia served as a rallying point for white supremacists during the summer of 2017. All the while, uh, David Diggs' flamboyant portrayal of him in the musical Hamilton was winning acclaim on Broadway. So there's two different Jeffersons, and, and there's some extent, truth to this. You have, but they're they're two different they're two different Jeffersons of mostly a progressive-minded imagination. The, the Thomas Jefferson who implanted the ideas of liberty that gave us now LGBT. <laughs> and then the Thomas Jefferson that is super uh, uh, racist and, and misogynistic and a horrible person. And so these are two Jeffersons that are really the creations of the minds of pro progressive leftists. Well, um, this is this article is in Christianity Today, if I haven't mentioned that, but um, it goes on. It says much of this controversy stems from Jefferson's dual identity as the author of the Declaration of Independence and his status as one of the nation's most prominent slaveholders. Add to this the unsettling reality, the unsettling reality that Jefferson fathered at least six children with an enslaved woman, Sally Hemings, and it's little wonder that many Americans find themselves wondering how such a man could have penned the words, all men are created equal. Now, if you just understand the, the times and what Jefferson was trying to say, it's not really that much of a mystery how he could have uh, penned this and what he meant by it. But uh, the notice, notice what they say here about what, what the author says about Sally Hemings. That uh, in this review of Thomas Kidd's book, that it's a reality, an unsettling reality. Now, what it should say is, Add to this, the if they're going to say anything, the unsettling possibility. If they said unsettling possibility, okay, but it's reality. That means it's this is not to be questioned. This is part of the narrative. Now, if you look at the book here by Thomas Kidd, in the first on the first page in the introduction, it says this. It says it makes the same assumption. It says Thomas Jefferson. Uh, his relationship with Sally Hemings produced at least one and perhaps as many as six children. So it's just an assumption. And I notice in the bibliography at the end, there's a lot of um, quoting Gordon Reed. And, and Gordon Reed is the one that spearheaded this narrative. And so uh, you, I haven't read the whole book, but first page, you're seeing already this assumption is being made here. So uh, is it any wonder you know, that you have in Christianity today, uh, this is now uh, being just, this is just assumed. And so it's not so much that I'm um, that I, that I'm just wanting to defend everything Thomas Jefferson's ever done, and I think he's a perfect man. I don't think that at all. Uh, it's not even that I'm you know uh, that I know for a hundred percent fact that he didn't have this relationship with Sally Hemings. I don't know that for a hundred percent fact, uh, but it's given the tools of historical analysis, it is very unlikely. Given what we know, and we only have a part of the evidence, we don't have everything. Only God knows. But what we do have points to the idea that it's not Thomas Jefferson, it's someone else in his family that had this affair with Sally Hemings, and we don't know that it was a rape. And so 
Um, that's, of course, th this possibility, possibility of a possibility has now streamed into the mainstream of American culture to the point that you just can't even question this. This is just part of the narrative. And so it makes things on July 4th, there, there's, there's even a little bit of tension there, like, well, this is the guy who authored the Declaration of Independence, and this is what he did. Um, there, there's kind of this, there, there's an undercurrent here, and it doesn't need to be there. That's my point, is it just doesn't need to be there. There's no reason for us to just make these assumptions. Uh, but it, this is the wedding of the, the, black, the BLM stuff with the Me Too stuff in a way, because what, what this does is it, without the sufficient evidence, with just the mere accusation, we just assume that, that that's what happened and that it was in fact a rape, that that's what Thomas Jefferson did. And so you have the, almost like a Me Too element there. It's, it's guilty until proven innocent. And then you have the BLM thing with, well, this is how, this is just how black women were just treated. This is, this is uh, um, in fact, uh, here's a clip. This is from, uh, this is a few years ago, but this is Curtis Woods. He was the chairman of the resolutions committee that gave you us Re resolution nine that, uh, viewed critical race theory as an analytical tool in the Southern Baptist Convention. And he, for many years, taught at Southern Seminary. This is what he said. And I think what happens is we, we, we forget that race is a fictive. It is an imaginary idea. It is imaginary. Though it's real and it has real implications, nonetheless, it was created, socially constructed, in the same way ethnicity was, but worse because it was a prohibition. It circumscribed a person's destiny on earth. So when we say black lives matter, here's what's happening. For so many centuries, in American history, in the American political economy, black lives didn't matter. You could kill a black man and not even worry about it. You could rape that black woman and it not be considered a crime. You could have a president by the name of Thomas Jefferson who rapes a 16-year-old child in France by the name of Sally Hemings who was the half-sister of his wife. This history, y'all and have 10 children with that woman, and then historians call her his concubine. Yeah. I'm trying not to preach, right? She can't be a concubine if she's an enslaved African woman. Concub if you're a concubine, that connotes the idea of consent, yeah. right? No, she was raped by sitting president of the United States of America. So here's why when we think Black Lives Matter, we hear things like, let's make America great again. Like, what you mean when you say that? Because it wasn't great for everyone who existed in it. Mm -hmm. So why do Black Lives Matter? Because legally in this country for centuries, it didn't. So that was Curtis Woods, who was the chairman for the Resolutions Committee in 2019 for the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, well-respected, uh, or was at least up until recently in the SBC. And this is what he says on panels. And he says it, like, on other panels, too. This isn't unique to him. I mean, I've watched a number of them. And uh, so th this kind of thing, though, um, is not uncommon. To, and he uses, as an example here, Thomas Jefferson. You know, why do black lives matter? Because they didn't matter. And guess what? They didn't matter to Thomas Jefferson. Because while he was a sitting president, this is what he did. And, of course, he, he gets some things wrong. It, it wasn't that Thomas Jefferson was doing this as a sitting president. It was rumors to prevent him from becoming elected. I mean, politics has always been dirty. There were people saying...
he's going to make everything atheist if he's elected. I mean, there, there was all kinds of uh, things going on, but uh, rumors and, and just mud being slung. But uh, it wasn't 10 children. It was at most six and as little, you know, possibly one, Esten. But he, he's saying all this to just make a point that this is how uh, black lives have been treated. This is the 1619 Project, basically. This, is, and this isn't accurate. This isn't across the board accurate. It's much more complicated than what he's, he's simplifying it into. That's just how it was. That's not just how it was. And the example, the primary one he's using is at best dubious. It's not, uh, it, it should not be taught as a fact. And he presents it as a fact. It's just history. Well, I want to present to you right now, I want to show you, as promised, I did a, an interview with Mark Halachak uh, a few weeks ago, I think, or maybe it's more than that, maybe it's over a month ago, I think I released that, and we talked a little bit about Thomas Jefferson, and in the comments, I remember some people were, you know, how can you say that Thomas, or how can Mark Halachak say that Thomas Jefferson, uh, it's, it's unlikely that he fathered uh, children with Sally Hemings, I mean, this is just erasing American history, because that's how accepted this is now, and, th th and this... Again, this is kind of this is the same assumptions that critical race theorists make are being made here by historians to get to the point of it's a fact that Thomas Jefferson did this. Why is it? Why is it a fact? Uh, Where's the evidence for it? Well, we don't really have uh, hard evidence for it. So, you know, how in what sense is it a fact? How can we say that? Well, I'm going to give you now the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say, because I, I said hey, there, I know there's more there's more coming out. There's a video coming out about Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, and here it is. And I'll put the link in the info section. If you want to just go get the standalone video, so you don't want a link to this podcast, you want just what I'm about to play by Mark Halachak, the link is in the info section. You can go check that out. Uh, here we go, though. Here's Mark Halachak on Thomas Jefferson and whether or not he fathered children or a child with Sally Hemings. Good afternoon. I'm Dr. Mark Andrew Holacek, I'm a Thomas Jefferson scholar, and I'd like to talk to you today about Thomas Jefferson and his avowed affair with Sally Hemings, his slave. Now, I want to start off with Jefferson scholar. She's known to be the world's foremost authority on Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, and that Gordon Reed from Harvard University, and she says, Symbolically, it's tremendously important for people as a way of inclusion. Nathan Huggins said that the Sally Hemings story was a way of establishing black people's birthright to America. If you look at the flip side of it, rejecting the story is a part of the rejecting of black people's birthright in claims to America. So again, this smacks of what goes on with the 1619 thesis. The whole idea is, is that there have to be some way of including African-American people in the story of the founding of the country here. So she's doing it in, in by having Thomas Jefferson father children with his slave. Now, uh, let's go to a brief history here. Fawn Brody in 1974 writes Thomas Jefferson in Intimate History. 1979, Barbara Chase Rebeau writes Sally Hemings, a novel. In 1995, Jefferson in Paris is a movie that comes out and shows Sally Hemings to be a young, beautiful, elegant woman. Then comes the DNA study in 1998, spearheaded by Eugene Foster. The DNA study shows that the final child of Sally Hemings has the Thomas Jefferson Y chromosome. And if you know anything about uh, biology, uh, it, all that means is Jefferson could have been the father of Eston, was born in 1808, 
or any male in Jefferson's line could have been the father of Eston Hemings. Now, Nature magazine came right out and said, Jefferson fathered slaves last child. There never was such a sea change in historical opinion as there was at this time. Almost all historians who thought Jefferson didn't father any of Hemings' children now change their mind and say, okay, Jefferson did father Esteen Hemings and presumably fathered all of the children. The key event for me, what brought me to Lynchburg is in 2018, the Pundits at the Thomas Jefferson Foundation at Monticello said that Jefferson definitely fathered all of Sally Hemings' children. Even though none of the evidence had changed, nothing had been added, all we had was DNA evidence that showed Jefferson could have fathered Eston. No genetic evidence of anything else. Primary source evidence, that is eyewitness claims, people whose testimony could be admitted in a court of law. In terms of Jefferson, the pro-paternity case, that Jefferson was the father of all the children, there, is, there are zero bits of primary evidence that show Jefferson fathered. They have nothing. Evidence against paternity, there are four bits of evidence, and one of which is uh, the testimony of Thomas Jefferson himself in 1805. Jefferson, presumably when he was a young man, not yet married, his neighbor and friend Thomas Walker had some affairs to uh, conduct with the Native Americans m miles and miles away and he asked Jefferson to look after his wife. Thomas presumably did more than look after his wife and made a pass at her or presumably consummated a sexual affair with her. I suspect that there was no sexual affair, but he admits to having made a pass at her. In 1805, while he's president, he says, you will perceive that I plead guilty to one of their charges, that when young and single, I offered love to a handsome lady. I acknowledge its incorrectness. It is the only one founded in truth among all their allegations. Now, by implication, when he says the only one, this rules out the Sally Hemings affair. Sally Hemings affair had been circulating uh, quite robustly at the time. There is another testimony by overseer Edmund Bacon, who in 1862, he's talking about some male leaving Sally Hemings' room at Monticello early in the morning. Uh, Bacon is responding to a suspicion that Jefferson freed Sally Hemings' daughter, Harriet Hemings, because she was his daughter. And Bacon says, she was not his daughter, not, not Thomas Jefferson's daughter, she was Blank's daughter. I know that. I have seen him come out of her mother's room many a morning when I went up to Monticello very early. So we have primary evidence of someone who sees someone other than Thomas Jefferson coming out of Sally Hemings' room. Very important evidence. Then there's the testimony of slave Isaac Jefferson, which implicates to some extent Thomas Jefferson's brother Randolph Jefferson. He says something to the effect, he says, old Massa Randolph, he used to hang around the slaves at Mulberry Road till all hours in the morning, fiddle and sing all hours of the night. He says, he ain't got no more sense than, than Isaac, in other words, myself. So we have testimony that puts Jefferson's brother at the scene of the crime. Lastly, we have the testimony of Abigail Adams when Jefferson's daughter Maria or Mary comes to France. Uh, she first goes to England and Abigail Adams takes care of her. And in two separate letters to Thomas, she says, talking about um, 
Sally Hemings, who had accompanied Mary Jefferson on the boat ride, and Sally is 14, Mary's eight at the time, and um, Abigail says in two separate letters that the woman accompanying the child wants more attention than the child. By implication, again, it, it's very suggestive that if Mary is eight at the time, then woman Sally Hemings, who is supposed to be taking care of her, is acting at perhaps a level of maturity at seven years of age. Now, it's a very credible testimony, Abigail Adams. The complete case for the people at Monticello rests on the Madison Hemings testimony in 1873, where he said, Jefferson was my father. Uh, that testimony is secondary testimony, and um, Gordon Reed goes on to say at one point, this testimony is so critical to our case that it needs to be used and taken as primary source testimony. So by fiat, she wants to claim secondary witness, secondary testimony needs to be taken as primary, which is something you just can't do in scholarship. Lastly, I'll leave you off with a quote uh, from Gordon Reed, who's the main player here, and she's talking about people who come and visit Monticello and are put off by the notion that they're gonna hear about Sally Hemings. She says, some people come here in other words, Monticello, and say, I didn't come here to a slave plantation to hear about slavery. There's nothing to do, she says, but to keep pushing back. That's the notion here. Whether you want to hear it or not, we're going to talk about Jefferson's racism. We're going to talk about him possibly raping Sally Hemings, even if the evidence is not suggestive in the least. That's the agenda, and it seems to me that the Thomas Jefferson Foundation has what I call a racist agenda, an agenda where they're going to use race to work towards uh, racial equality, uh, which I think is a fine thing. But in the process, we're going to drag Thomas Jefferson through the mud, which I don't think is a good thing. History is about veridicality. It's about truthfulness. So you say, John, what does this have to do with the topics that you normally cover? Uh, this isn't about social justice and evangelicalism, is it? Well, I, I, hopefully I've shown you that, yeah, this is just one of the things, one of the tentacles that gets into even evangelical circles. Uh, and it's streaming from some bad assumptions. It's, it's just not, um, it's not Christian to... It, it, it's not even just gossip, it's slander. It's not Christian to slander someone, uh, to potentially lie about them, to say things. And, and, and this is one of the things, this is one of the contentions I have, is it's equally slander if you do it about someone who's dead, right? Um, I think there's a sense in which some people think it's not slander because the person's died and they've been dead maybe uh, hundreds of years, maybe thousands of years. Uh, but they're not here to defend themselves, so... There's no, you know, they can't push back, but it's still wrong. You, we, we can only go where the evidence leads us, and we can only um, go as far as the evidence leads us. We can't go beyond that, and, and that's exactly what's happening here. There's, there's going uh, really against some evidence and then going beyond whatever little evidence there might be that suggests that there could be a relationship between Jefferson and Hemings, and then going the extra step of it's a rape. 
that is what we call a slander. There's just no reason. There's no, uh, there, at best, you can say, well, there's a slim possibility this may have happened, uh, and it could have been a rape, you know, this, this thing. Or there's a possibility that Jefferson and Hemings had ch children together, and here's the things that might point to that, and here's the things, and also present, and, and there's also evidence that seems to pr uh, not point to it. But primary source evidence primarily points away from it, that it didn't really, that it, that it most likely did not happen. So that I wanted to present this to you because I'm concerned that it's not just this, but a lot of things like this are just being baked in to our nat national um, our national mythology. That what we think of, uh, and, and it's we have flaws in this country. We have people. Every man is flawed. There's going to be things, but we don't we we don't need to bend to a narrative that just sees the whole thing as fundamentally flawed and definitionally. Uh, evil and oppressive, and therefore we need to now uh, uh, we we need to suppress actual facts, actual information we have in order to uh, serve the narrative, and that's what's happening. Truth is being sacrificed uh, at the expense of a political narrative, a modern political narrative. And make no mistake, these are the kind of people they, they don't want to stop with Confederate monuments. They want to go way farther than that. They would love to take down Thomas Jefferson. I just read uh, just recently Abraham Lincoln. Um, it was uh, one of the colleges here in New York. There was a bust of him, an Abraham Lincoln bust with the emancipation, I think, it, no, actually it was, I think it was the Emancipation Proclamation, if I'm not mistaken, but behind him. But it was Lincoln and uh, either his inaugural or the Emancipation Proclamation at one of the SUNY schools. Uh, I'm trying to remember which one it was now. I think it was SUNY Binghamton, maybe. maybe. Or no, no, it, was, it wasn't a SUNY school. It was Cornell, I believe. It was Cornell University. Uh, they just recently took it out. No explanation. Uh, why is it gone? Well, someone complained. That's the only thing. Someone complained. Uh, but, but we've seen Lincoln being taken out of Boston and Lincoln's statue defaced in Portland, Oregon. And I believe in Chicago, there was an attack, if I'm not mistaken, on a Lincoln statue. And I mean, you don't think that this narrative is starting to eat into other areas. Think again. And I can pull up you a bunch of quotes from Abraham Lincoln that, are, that you would, in our modern day and age, consider to be remarkably racist. Um, that doesn't, you know, mean that he's not a, a very important figure to our country and uh, someone that we need to understand. And uh, so, so, and someone who accomplished uh, very important things. And, and that's part of the, the issue with all this is things are being fundamentally redefined according to a negative. And when we don't have enough of a negative, we just make stuff up. We just, we make the jump. We make the connection, even if the connection's not warranted. And that's what's happening with Thomas Jefferson. Even if the connection's not warranted, we make the connection to slander him. And look, Jefferson was a slaveholder, okay? You can say that, and that's accurate. He had slaves, absolutely. Uh, you can say that uh, Jefferson, um, as Mark Alicek just said, you know, once uh, had, uh, it was possible that he may have had an affair. He at least had lustful thoughts about another woman. I mean, you could say that about Thomas Jefferson. He wasn't an Orthodox Christian, certainly. You can say that about Thomas Jefferson. I mean, he believed in the teachings of Jesus, but he, he wasn't, he was more um, deistic, for lack of a better term. Uh, you could say that about, there's a lot of things you could say about Thomas Jefferson that would be negative for a Christian. But you can't say stuff that didn't happen. And that's my point. That's what we can't be doing. Uh, and I've noticed that there's an effort to take people who had some great flaws and make them just the, the best. Make them, uh, honor them. They are great. I mean, 
Martin Luther King Jr. is like this. Nelson Mandela's like this. Gandhi's like this. I mean, you take these figures and you're like, you know, read about what Gandhi did with boys. Read about what MLK did uh, with with women. Uh, read about, you know, um, what Nelson Mandela uh, did as far as terrorism is concerned. Read, I mean, okay, all these guys have really bad, and, you know, that should probably be part of the narrative, you'd think. I mean, if we're going to be accurate about the guy, at least mention these those things are there. You, you can't really mention them in most settings. We just have to only focus on the, the mythology of how great these people are for because because guess what? They forwarded the next rung on the ladder for uh, what the left really values um, and what conservatives also value to some extent in some places, I suppose. But they've but they're heroes to the left primarily. And that's why that you can't question them. Um, but then you take people like Thomas Jefferson and we can ignore all the, the positive things or the unique contributions, the important things, and just focus on the negative. Uh, that's using unequal weights and measures. Uh, God hates that kind of thing. And that's what's happening. It's happening in evangelicalism, and it shouldn't be happening in evangelicalism. We need to be people of the truth. And I know we're, we're people of the truth of Scripture, but we should just be people of the truth in general. If we're going to be of the truth of Scripture, let's be of all the truth. And so that's why I think the 1607 Project is important. Uh, because we want uh, an accurate history uh, as much as possible. And one that also, I think, hits the right notes, emphasizes the right things, the things that are actually are important to uh, the state of affairs that exist today, where where we've come from. So anyway, hopefully that was helpful uh, for some of you. Um, possibly more coming later in the week. I'm not exactly sure. There's just a lot going on. There's, uh, there's things in evangelicalism I also want to talk about, but uh, but I, I have so much going on this week, I'm not sure uh, to what extent I'll be able to drop a podcast. But um, I hope this was helpful for you, especially uh, on the heels of July 4th. God bless, and um, more coming. Bye now. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.